0: This audio is brought to you by MuslimCentral.com. So, inshallah, ta'ala, before we get started, I know I'm competing with the uh, game one of the finals. So, if I see you looking at your phone too much, I know what you're doing, uh, sisters included. Um, but with that being said, uh, this is a topic that I think is the topic of the day. And I debated, honestly, whether to dedicate a whole session towards this for now or to merge it within the overall conquests under Umar ibn Khattab. And honestly, it deserves its own topic, it deserves its own lecture. So, bidnillahi tonight we will focus on Jerusalem, but we will talk briefly about the context before we get to Jerusalem under Umar ibn Khattab. Just a few things, Lahi ta'ala. This Thursday night, only online, inshallah ta'ala, on Yaqeen's uh, YouTube channel, we'll have a lecture on the virtues of Dhul Hijjah and how to make the most of the first 10 days of Dhul Hijjah, inshallah ta'ala. So that's going to be Thursday at 7 o'clock, Lahi ta'ala. And also this weekend, inshallah ta'ala, uh, we will be starting our Dhul Hijjah series, which is actually building on the Ramadan series of meeting Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it focuses on his Hajj Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the episodes are a little bit longer so we're gonna test your attention span there. They average 12 to 15 minutes unlike Ramadan where the Meeting Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam episodes were averaging uh, seven to nine minutes. So we'll test your attention span insha'Allah. But basically that series will go through the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's love for Mecca, his love for Medina and then eventually the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, his Umraz before the Hijra, his Hajj before the Hijra and the ultimate hajjatul wadaa of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and a very up close and personal look at the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam during his Hajj. So that's going to start this weekend inshaAllah ta'ala as we begin ta'ala the first 10 days of the Hijjah. Uh, so please tune into that, tayyib. Bismillah. So with Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu as we speak about Jerusalem I want to first and foremost talk about the political situation That was in al-Quds at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and some of the ways in which the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was speaking about al-Quds may Allah subhanahu wa taala liberate it, Allahumma amin, in his time. Now we spoke a little bit about this when we actually spoke about Abu Bakr radhiAllahu taala anhu and the bet that he made over. The Surah that came down where Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la promised the victory of the Romans over the Persians Allah mentions that the Romans will defeat the Persians between three and nine years and that was looked at as an impossible feat but Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la prophesized it on the tongue of the Prophet and it happens as it happens. Also, we spoke about this a little bit with Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah radiAllahu ta'ala anhu, who of course will also come up in this lecture. But the biggest city, for those of you that are from Suria in particular, and of course all of Hashem sham uh, includes Suria, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine. The biggest city in Suria, what is modern day Suria at the time was what? Does anyone know? It wasn't Damascus. Damascus was second. Uh, we got some Halabi uh, partisanship here. It was actually Hems. So all those jokes about Hems, you know, you have to take them back. Hems, of course, a brilliant city. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala liberate the people of Syria. Hems was the biggest city in Asham. And second to Hems was Damascus. was Damascus. Now the Persians overtook Damascus in the year 613. This is when the Prophet ﷺ essentially began his public da'wah. So the Persian and Roman empire empires their battle is heating up. And in the year 614, that is when the Persians took Al-Quds, when they took Jerusalem from the Romans, i.e. the Christians. And when the Persians took the city of Jerusalem, they have absolutely no regard for the city. Meaning what? They are not a people who see any value in Al-Quds. They were Zoroastrians, they were Majus. They didn't believe that there was anything holy about the Holy Land. They didn't have a place to connect themselves to. But what they did know was that this was the center of religious and cultural life for the Byzantines, for the Christians at the time. And so they wanted to truly make an example out of that city and out of the people. And they carried out one of the largest massacres of that entire century they killed 90,000 people now think about without you know weapons of mass destruction that we have today what does it take to kill 90,000 people in one occurrence they killed 90,000 people 90,000 christians in al-quds in jerusalem they desecrated all of the christian holy sites and they even stole from the church of the Holy Sepulchre, what is known as the true cross. The true cross is what Christians hold that Isa, السلام, that Jesus, peace be upon him, was crucified on. So imagine the destruction, imagine the message that was sent, imagine what this does to the Christians of the time and does to the Byzantine Empire when the Persians sack your most prominent city and they desecrate your entire holy life They even steal the cross that you believe that Isa was crucified on, and they leave behind 90,000 corpses. I mean, how many people even existed in the world at that time for 90,000 people to be murdered in that sense? That was a test for the Roman Empire to where if you're looking at that situation, you're thinking there is no way they're going to come out of this. They are mentally, emotionally, physically broken down as an empire and as a people. And, and Kisra, who we know is a very er- arrogant ruler in Persia, he rubs it in. He doesn't care about religion. He sends a letter to Heraclius at the time, who is the leader of the Byzantines, and he basically says, I'm clearly God, and whoever you worship couldn't defend Jerusalem, the arrogance. Right, so he actually claims, "I must be God because of what I was able to do to Jerusalem." Subhanallah, the Sunnah of Allah with tyrants. Every tyrant eventually looks around and thinks, "I must be him," and then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala humbles them. May Allah make an example out of the current occupiers and tyrants. Allahumma amin. So he, he says, "I must be God," and your God clearly could not defend Jerusalem. So this was a crippling moment, and that's when Allah reveals Surah <laughs> Rum. SubhanAllah, if you're a Muslim, you're, are, are we sure about this? Yes, we are sure because it's Qur'an. Allah revealed Surah Rum at that time. Now, uh, the Christians and the Persians were obviously at war. The Jewish population, the Jews of Jerusalem allied themselves with who in this battle? They had to pick a side, right? You're a smaller population, you have to pick a side. Who did they, which side did they pick? They actually picked the Persian side because of the animosity between the Christians and the Jews and this will be important to understand when we come to the conquest of Jerusalem under Umar radiallahu ta'ala so the Jews at that time allied with the Zoroastrians against the Christians in return for a promise that they would be able to establish their own religious life in Jerusalem because they were persecuted by Christians right It's just persecution going all around so the Christians were persecuting them so they cho- they chose the Zoroastrians because the Zoroastrians would give them at least some sort of guarantee that they would be able to establish some sort of religious life. This entire time the Muslims are praying towards where? They're praying towards Jerusalem. The Qibla of the Muslims this entire time is Al-Quds. While this massacre takes place, the Muslims are praying in that direction. While all of the holy life in Jerusalem has been completely reduced to pieces, the Muslims are praying towards Jerusalem. And so it's important to understand them when al isra al-mi'raj takes place. Who ruled Jerusalem at the time? The Persians. So there was nothing of churches, nothing of any worship or anything that was taking place in the area of al-Aqsa. At the time that the Prophet ﷺ was taken to Jerusalem and he led the Prophets in prayer in that night. It was a neglected area because the Persians had no need for it. They had no desire for it. They already made their example out of the Christians. At that point, they neglected it and let it be. And the Prophet when he comes back to Mecca, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as he is questioned about al isra al-Mi'raj, he said, fil-Hijr wa Quraish an uh, That you, I, I'm seeing myself. You saw me in the Hijr in front of the Kaaba when Quraysh was antagonizing me and asking me about my, my journey. And they're asking me, an min bayt al they're asking me about things in bayt al-maqdis and the prophet sallallahu said that it was shown to me allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rafa'ahu li that allah raised al-quds in front of me and i was looking at it so imagine the prophet sallallahu was standing in front of the Kaaba. And anything they ask the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi an shay'in illa anba'tuhum bihi The Prophet sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says that everything they were asking me about I'm looking at the picture of Jerusalem and telling them about it. Which was a proof from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Messenger sallallahu that he was able to describe Jerusalem perfectly. To where when Quraysh sent people to question about what the Prophet sallallahu was questioned about everything the Prophet sallallahu described about Jerusalem was perfect. The roads to Jerusalem, the structures that existed and should have existed in Jerusalem, everything the Prophet was able to explain it as a miracle from Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. Now of course in the year 624, the same year as Badr, heraclius fights back and the Romans defeat the Persians as Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la promised. And as we said, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la, when he said that this is wa'dallah. Allah, but this is the promise of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. Yafrahu al الْمُؤْمِنِينَ الله, That that is the day that the believers will be pleased with the victory from Allah It had a double meaning It meant that the Christians who were closer to the Muslims would defeat the Persians and the Muslims would defeat Quraysh who were allied with the Persians Okay, so it was in the year 624 What did Heraclius do? The leader of the Romans He destroyed the birthplace of Zoroaster which was the the key temple of the Majus, of the Persian Empire at the time. He destroyed that temple as retaliation for what they did to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and whatever remains of Christian life. And on top of that, the Christians did not have any idea of the sanctity of any of the area of Jerusalem outside of the churches that they had built. So what did the Christians do to the area where the dome of the rock exists now. That Jewish people call Temple Mount, that Muslims, of course, refer to as Pubbat-Sahra and the area of the Dome of the Rock. You know what you know what the Romans did to it? They turned it into the filthiest dumpster in Jerusalem. So the Christians had no need for the area of Al-Aqsa or the area of the Dome where the Dome of the Rock currently is. They turned it into the dumpster. Of Jerusalem and Heraclius instructed that when you throw your rotten corpses throw them in that area and there are other nastier details about what they would cast there that I don't care to mention because there are children here but let me just say that they cast everything nasty that they could think of in that area because they wanted to humiliate the Jews who allied with the Persians so they went back to persecuting the Jews and of course humiliating that area because to them the christians this also had no meaning church of the holy sepulcher has meaning to us this whole area over here we don't care about so it's a dumpster to us and that is the way that they treated it now the prophet is in medina and when the prophet would next see jerusalem as far as we know is a very interesting place can anyone tell me a narration where the prophet would see in Medina in particular. Anyone know? What is it? When did the Prophet ﷺ see a vision of Jerusalem again in Medina? When he was in the ditch. The, 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 uh, the Ahzab, the, when the Ahzab had gathered against the Muslims in Medina and they built the Khandaq, when they built the trench and the Prophet ﷺ was hitting the stone and Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala showed the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the palaces of the world and in one narration particularly the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saw al-Quds so he saw Yemen he saw Abyssinia he saw Persia he saw Damascus he saw Misr he saw all of these palaces around the world and the munafiqun the hypocrites made fun of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he said, look, these people can't even, they can't even use the bathroom. This was the word that the hypocrites said amongst themselves. He said, Rasulullah and his followers can't even use the bathroom without fearing for their lives. And he's promising them what? He's promising them Jerusalem and Yemen and Abyssinia. And he's making all these lofty promises to, to them. Allah was the one making the promises. Right? تَمَّتْ كَلِمَةُ رَبِّكَ صدقا وَعَدْلًا لَا مُبَدِّلَ لِكَلِمَاتِهِ Allah's word will come true Ya Rasulullah, your followers that are with you will all go to these places and indeed those that narrated the hadith this is one of the things that Ibn Hajar Rahimullah mentions, it's very special all of those that narrated the hadith about the Prophet i seeing those places were amongst the Sahaba that went to one of those places so anhu, of course most famously of course would be the conqueror of the same place that he left seeking Allah's guidance. So the Prophet saw Jerusalem from the ditch of Al-Madinah when they were about to be massacred. He saw its palaces as well. The next incident that we see in the build-up to Umar coming is when Heraclius sees a dream about the Prophet وسلم, and Heraclius had just... You know, if you look in the the biography of of Heraclius, his most famous accomplishment is that he brought back the cross. He rescued the cross. And that was in the year 628. He brought back the true cross, so he was hailed by Christians as the savior of the true cross. which is a pretty big deal, right? No sooner did he return to Jerusalem except that Abu Sufyan was in front of him. Because Hudaybiya happened right after that. And Heraclius is like, who are you people? And is there a prophet that came amongst you? Tell me about this prophet. And the famous incident of heraclius quizzing Abu Sufyan about the prophet ﷺ, takes place literally right after he brought the true cross back to Jerusalem. And that was a sign that this message that has spread in Mecca is on its way to Jerusalem as well. And heraclius knew it. He knew that in his lifetime, he was going to have to confront this message. Subhanallah. So the true cross was rescued literally the same year as Hudaybiyyah where Abu Sufyan is in front of Heraculus and he sees the dream about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he uh, questions Abu Sufyan about the spread of Islam and particularly about the ethics of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where Abu Sufyan was forced to tell the truth about the ethics of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So uh, this is sort of the build up to the historical part of this before the Prophet Sallallahu death when it comes to Jerusalem, when it comes to uh, Palestine, and of course uh, Asham as a whole. By the way, just as a, as, as a side note, if you read about the history of Heraclius, you'll actually see that he was someone who was considered to be at odds with the church at the time because he held on to certain theological views that made him uh, sort of an outcast. So he had a tension uh, with the church. And that was, when you look into the history of that dispute, it's very interesting because the Christians were still trying to figure out, now that the church had decided that Jesus and God were one, they had to work out all of these issues, verses in the Bible that suggest separate entities, okay? So if Jesus and God are one, then what do we do about the verses in the the Bible where Jesus clearly refers to the Father as other than himself? And this was a particular uh, school of thought That was outlawed it's considered the last of the issues that the roman church shut down right which was the issue of whether or not jesus had his own human will or if there were two wills the will of god and the will of jesus okay the will of a human jesus and the will of the divine or is there just one will so heraclius was actually at odds with the church uh, as well uh, at this time now obviously finally the prophet giving the sahaba all of these narrations about going to Al-Aqsa and the ulama say this is very interesting because the Prophet ﷺ said to them Ar-rihalu ila masajid. you take journeys to three masjids you should undertake a journey only to three masjids Mecca, Masjid Al-Haram the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, and the Masjid of Al-Aqsa so the Prophet ﷺ pushing them and prompting them to go and pray in Al-Aqsa and of course the narration uh, which has some dispute in its chain where the prophet said in the narration of Maymuna bin Sa'ad if you can't go there then at least send some oil to light up its lamps but keep yourself connected to Al-Aqsa and make your way to Al-Aqsa now comes the time of Umar bin Khattab and since we're talking about Umar عنه, I want you to appreciate for a moment how much of Islam spread in the time of Umar remember the dream we talked about last, last week the water spreading throughout the world so I'm gonna name some countries for you, modern day countries, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Lebanon, Egypt, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Bukhara, and even part of Pakistan. All of that came under Islam in the khilaf of Umar radiAllahu ta'ala anhu. <laughs> How many of you are covered in those countries <laughs> that I just mentioned, your ancestors? All of that in the time of Umar radiAllahu ta'ala anhu. SubhanAllah, what a man. What a a blessing, what a prophecy of the dream of the Prophet that the water would spread in the time of Umar throughout the earth. The Muslims defeat the Persians first, the most arrogant, brutal empire in the world. The Muslims were able to defeat them in one year. (laughs) One year. The Persians did not even take the Muslims seriously. They thought it was a joke. When Rab'i ibn Amr the Bedouin came standing in front of Rustum, these pompous rulers, they thought it was a joke. Like you Bedouins from the desert think that we should take you seriously? Tried to kill the Prophet ﷺ, tried to make an example out of the Muslims. The entire Persian Empire collapsed at the hands of the Muslims under Umar in one year. So this is after that, the Battle of Qadisiyyah, multiple territories. Then the Byzantines, the Roman Empire. Okay. And particularly the most consequential battle with the Roman Empire that changed things was the Battle of Yarmouk. So if you read about the Battle of Yarmouk, once the Muslims won the Battle of Yarmouk, then it was a sign that the rest of the Empire was going to fall to the Muslims as well. That this battle was also going to end with the Muslims in charge of all of the contested territories between them and the Romans. So the Muslims have defeated the Persians under Umar they are cutting in the heart of the Byzantines now where they've cut up the territories of the Roman Empire, of the Byzantines at this point. And Jerusalem in particular, Al-Quds, is now under siege from all directions. It's under siege from all directions. The Muslims have taken Damascus. They have taken masr They have taken Egypt. They have taken the land of Jordan. And they are now surrounding Jerusalem from all ends but they don't want to spill blood in al-Quds. The Muslims were not looking for the spilling of blood in Jerusalem. And so as they are surrounding it from all of these different directions, when the Muslims enter into the modern area of Ariha of Jericho, the patriarch of Jerusalem who is a very important figure, his name is Sophronius, Sophronius. Sophronius It's considered a saint in the Catholic Church. He's the patriarch of Jerusalem who's mentioned in all the famous narrations with Anhu. Knowing what the Persians did to Jerusalem, what do you think he did? Smart man. He took the cross because that's their most sacred relic and he sent it secretly to Constantinople, Istanbul now. This is before Muhammad al-Fatih. So he wanted to save the cross in case they come in and do to us what the Persians did to us, Because we've heard about their adil, we've heard about their justice, we've heard about the ways that they have dealt with these different places, but just in case, let's protect our relics. And they had fortified Jerusalem so well after what happened with the Persians because they were so worried about what would happen to them should this type of situation arise. So Sophronius is stalling the conquest of Jerusalem and in the meantime trying to evacuate the relics of Christianity out of fear that maybe the Muslims will be treacherous and do to us what the Persians did to us as well. And in the meantime, the communication starts. How long were the Muslims camped outside of Jerusalem? SubhanAllah, they were a patient army. (laughs) They didn't go in and just massacre people or kill anyone. Four months, four whole months, the Muslims were camped around Al-Quds and the negotiations took place with the patriarch of Jerusalem in particular. Who's, who was known as a noble man, someone that wanted to secure more than anything else his religious heritage. Didn't care as much for the, the political dominance of the Byzantines as much as he cared for the church, the cross, the ability for Christians to be able to practice their faith. That's what he was concerned about. They didn't like the, the, the you know, the, the politics of the Byzantines anyway. So the communication begins between Sophronius and the Muslims, and Sophronius feels throughout this conversation that the Muslims really don't want to kill anybody. (laughs) They're not trying to spill blood in a place that's holy to them. They're trying to make this a bloodless transfer as well. And this communication is a fascinating communication. The Muslims send this message that we're willing to let you practice your faith. We're willing to let you have your churches. We won't touch any of your relics. You'll pay the jizya you'll have our protection. The jizya is lower than the zakah. SubhanAllah, think about that. The justice of Islam as it's being communicated to him as well. The tax that you will pay that exempts you from serving in the Muslim army and defending a religion and an empire now that you don't necessarily believe in or hold to be sacred, the tax that you will pay for that protection is less than what the Muslims pay in zakah. Sounds like a great deal, right? So Sophronius is communicating with Abu Ubaidah ibn jarrah Something very interesting here that happens. Uh, there is a, a companion whose name is Sharhabil. Sharhabil ibn Hassanah ta'ala anhu, who by the way is one of the first. He's one of the earliest Muslims. Sharhabil ta'ala anhu. And his seerah up until like after the death of the Prophet ﷺ is basically silent. He was a brilliant warrior, a brilliant commander. He says, listen, um, you know I'm you know we're getting a little tired of some of these demands and then the last demand in particular was we want the Khalifa Sofrania said I want the Khalifa of the Muslims to come and assume the keys of Jerusalem send me Umar ibn al-Khattab this man who we have heard so much about this man who he mentioned this is very interesting he said the one who is spoken about in our scripture should come and assume what is rightfully attributed to him And what that means is that Ka'b ibn al-Ahbar became a Muslim. He was a Jewish rabbi that would become Muslim later. He said that in the scriptures, it was said that the follower of the Prophet to come would take the keys of Jerusalem with patched garments and high ethics. Patched garments and high ethics. So Sophronius interpreted that to be Umar rightfully so. He said, send the one about whom we hear about his justice, and we'll give him the keys. Shar Habir said, you know what, why don't we send Khalid ibn al-Waleed anhu and tell him it's Umar. <laughs> he's big, I mean, he's, he's physically the size of someone that could be, you know, you could maybe interpret him to be Umar. And he can go and he can just handle this affair for us. And, you know, he had a similar appearance apparently to Umar radiAllahu ta'ala anhu. And that didn't work at all because by that point they said what Khalid became famous in Asham. Why? The battle of the battles. I mean he's this hero in all of these battles, Yarmouk included. So, no, like it's, this isn't going to work, right? So Sophronius didn't fall for it. The Byzantines didn't fall for it. They said, listen, we want Umar to come. Some more context to this that the scholars mention. Sophronius was aware of a pact that Amr ibn al-As made and was signed by Umar to the Christians of Egypt. The treaty with the people of Egypt was that this is what Amr ibn al-As gives to the people of Egypt in terms of al-amn, in terms of security. He guarantees the protection of their lives, the protection of their religion, the protection of their wealth, the protection of their churches, the protection of their crosses, the protection of their land, the protection of their sea, and the one who signs this treaty is protected by Allah, protected by the Messenger of Allah, protected by Amir al-Mu'mineen, the commander of the believers Umar and the believers as a whole, and the Mu'mineen as a whole. Subhanallah, Egypt under the Muslims became a place in which Christianity thrived. Books about Christianity were written. Scholars of Christianity developed in Egypt under Muslim rule. Sophronius wants this type of a pact. He wants this type of a guarantee for Jerusalem from Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So Abu Ubaidah, he tries his last hand. He meets with Sophronius, the patriarch, and he meets with the elders of Asham and he tries to assure them. He says, listen, at this point now, he's the Emir of Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, all of these different places. Did we destroy any churches? Did we take any crosses? Did we betray our covenants? No, so he's able to assure him with all of these things but Sophronius insists it's gotta be Umar anhu. So anyway, Abu Ubaidah writes the letter to Umar ibn Khattab ta'ala anhu, to come to Al-Quds, inviting him to come to Jerusalem and saying the patriarch insists we will have a bloodless transfer, but you need to come take the key, you're written in their scripture, they know of your justice, they want your assurance. Here's a question that I have for you. How many times did Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu leave Medina in his entire Khilafah? Iraq, Iran, the Persian Empire, right? All the- Never. <laughs> he only left for this occasion, for Jerusalem, and then he was on his way when the plague hit, when Amwas hit, and when Amwas hit, when the plague hit, he turned around عنه, because of the famous conversation between him and Abu Ubaidah ibn jarrah There are other reasons for this in the political wisdom of Umar Umar عنه, said, I want to keep the senior Sahaba with me in Medina. Medina needs to leave, to, to remain as the core of my Ummah. So as Islam is spreading so rapidly, I need the senior Sahaba around me. And he would only send the Sahaba as generals, the senior Sahaba as generals to conquer certain lands or to open certain lands. Or he would appoint them as governors and even then Umar would summon them regularly to check upon them. So Umar wanted to maintain the core of the seniority of the Sahaba in Medina around him. He wanted to keep that with him and that's his central command and that was part of his diplomacy. The other thing that the scholars mentioned, subhanAllah, which is that Umar radiallahu anhu just really loved Medina. And if you think about Umar radiallahu anhu, his greatest desire was what? Was to die in Medina as a shaheed. Wasn't that the dua of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu that he used to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a shahadatu fi sabilik fi baladi, nabi- baladi nabi- that Allah gives me shahada in the city of the Prophet ﷺ. people would say to Umar radiallahu come on Hafsa radiallahu anha, come on dad, right? How are you gonna die shaheed in Medina? The wars are taking place all over the place. Nothing's happening in Medina. And he knew that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would fulfill his intention if he was sincere enough. So Umar did not want to leave Medina because he wanted to die in Medina. He didn't want to go die in Persia or die in Asham. He wanted to die in Medina and that was his wish and Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala would answer his dua, of course. The last thing is that Umar ta'ala anhu is 60 years old now. <laughs> He's not a young man anymore to where, you know, it's it's easy for him to go out in these different places and these different journeys. So that's one of the things that the ulama mentioned as well. So it's the political instability as well as the personal connection that he has to al-Madina and he wants to keep it, so what does he do? He consults Uthman and Ali, may Allah be pleased with them. A sign of the divine transfer to take place with Khulafa al rashidin He brings forth Uthman and Ali and he consults them about what he should do. Uthman said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, it's not a good idea. Don't leave Medina because that will leave Medina vulnerable. The enemies will take advantage of it and a plot will you know, will ensue on the inside of al Medina and who knows what could happen from there Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhu asked Ali radiyallahu anhu what he thought and subhanallah Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhu's number one advisor contrary to propaganda his number one advisor was Ali radiyallahu ta'ala anhu the person he asked for more details for more consultation the person he did shura with most was Ali ibn Abi Talib ta'ala anhu multiple incidents of this He he asked Ali should I go to Nahawan and fight against the Persians. Ali said I don't think it's a good idea. So he actually was going to go to Persia, fight the Persians and Ali was the one who held him back. The Hijri calendar that Umar established. He established that after asking Ali what do you think when should we start the calendar from? And it was Ali's opinion that Umar went with, may Allah be pleased with them, in which you have the Hijrah the calendar that was established at that time. So he takes him very seriously, multiple things, and Ali radiAllahu ta'ala Anhu, he said to him, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, this is a special opportunity, this is a place that our Prophet sallallahu had great ambitions for. It's worth the risk, inshaAllah ta'ala we will take care of things here go out and receive the keys of Jerusalem, especially if there's something scriptural to this, right? Like, go out and receive the keys of Jerusalem. And guess who who Umar radiallahu anhu appointed in in charge of Medina? Ali radiallahu anhu. So Ali actually stepped in at the command of Umar as the substitute Khalifa while he went out to Jerusalem to receive the keys. So Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu was placed in charge of Al-Medina by Umar radiallahu anhu and Umar radiallahu anhu makes his way out to Jerusalem. Now here comes the most interesting part. Weren't they worried about political instability? So shouldn't he take like a really strong posse, a really big army with him to go out to Jerusalem? Umar decides to make this entire journey, the man who would sleep out in the open on his shoes, he makes this entire journey with one camel and one servant and no army with him. He goes out carrying his sword and he has his sandals and he has one camel and one servant, and bismillah, let's make our way to Jerusalem. No one else follow me. Subhanallah. (laughs) He goes out to Jerusalem. And I want you to imagine the description of how he looked. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu did not wear a turban. Umar radiallahu anhu did not wear a helmet. So his head was bare, and yes, by the way, Umar radiallahu anhu was bald, okay? So Umar radiallahu anhu left his head exposed. Which of course, you know, for a royal occasion at the time, I mean subhanAllah, these were things that were significant, right? But this was the humility of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. It came naturally to him. The garment that he wore, remember we talked about that incident between him and Salman ta'ala anhu, about the garment that he had where he merged them together. The garment that Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu was wearing was a white garment and it had 17 patches on it. Patches, meaning these were places in the garment that ripped, it was a wool garment that ripped and he patched it together in those places. And the description of it, SubhanAllah, the description of it is it was disproportionately on his left side, Umar did not even care about the color of the patching. You know, usually when you want to patch your garment, you patch it with the same color. Right? It wasn't in fashion to just be random with your colors, Umar patched it with whatever colors he could find. So his garment was beat up. He's not wearing a turban or a helmet. He has absolutely nothing to suggest royalty and he goes traveling in the desert alone. The most powerful man in the world takes a trip from Medina to Jerusalem by himself with a servant with no army, fearing no one but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and without any of the appearance of a dignitary of the time. To go assume the keys of Jerusalem. Think about that, it gets better. Umar radiAllahu ta'ala anhu, he tells the servant, he says, listen, you and I are gonna take turns. We're gonna split this trip 50-50. You ride the camel 50% of the time, I ride the camel 50% of the time. So for half of this trip, Umar radiAllahu anhu is going to pull in the desert, the reins of this camel, while the servant sits on top. And they're going to take turns because that was the adal, that was the justice of Umar ibn khattab and SubhanAllah, one of the dua's that he used to make, عنه, he used to say, Allahumma tahr thawbi min al muslimin, Allahu Akbar, he said, Oh Allah, purify my thobe from being made of any of the money of the Muslims, meaning that, you know, you talk about Amana here, like the trust here, like let it be purified of any cheating in it, any deception in it. And they make this journey as they are making this journey, Umar radiallahu anhu to Jerusalem, him and his servant. They start to get closer to Palestine. The servant, it's his turn to get on the camel and Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu to pull based on the way that it was divided. Umar radiallahu anhu says, get on the camel. (laughs) We're about to enter into Palestine, it's the big moment, right? They wake up that morning and Umar radiallahu anhu says, your turn. And he says, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, they're not waiting for me. ينتظرونك, they're waiting for you. They're not waiting for me. Like, come on. Like, it's okay. I understand. I get it. <laughs> you know, It's already generous of you enough that you split this 50-50 for this entire journey. Umar anhu insists, he says, get on the camel. I'm going to pull the rein. It's 50-50. We agreed. Half-half. And he said, Al-Izza liman al amana. Said, honor is to the one who fulfills their trusts. Again, a man of amana. And you wonder where Umar ibn Abdul Aziz عنه, would get it from. SubhanAllah, his grandfather. Said, no, izzah, honor is to the one who fulfills his trust. I don't care if people are waiting on me and they see me pulling a camel, who cares? It gets worse. They're walking into Palestine and Umar falls in a puddle of mud. Allah decreed it that way. <laughs> so this white garment that already had 17 patches on it is now covered in mud because Umar anhu accidentally stepped into a puddle of mud. Okay, now this is getting embarrassing, right? Just so you don't blame the Sahaba with, with the famous incident that we know is coming up, you can imagine the scene. By the time Umar anhu gets there, the people have lined the streets to watch the reception of the key given from the hand of the patriarch, Sophronius to Umar they have lined the street for miles, people are standing in their balconies, they are looking on to see who is this great man that never leaves Medina, that we've heard about now because Islam has spread to all of the areas around us, who is this great man that we're going to see. So the Sahaba, they go out to meet Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and he arrives first and foremost in the area of Al-Jabiyah. Does anyone know where Al-Jabiyah is today? It's actually the Golan Heights illegally occupied, subhanAllah, may Allah liberate it, also stolen from the Muslims. He arrives in Al-Jabiyah, which is modern day, the, the Golan Heights, and this is right as he is about to make his entrance into Jerusalem. Some of the Sahaba come to meet him, as he's about to come in. Abu Ubaidah jarrah radiAllahu ta'ala anhu sees him, and he says, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, can you change? Can we get you some armor? <laughs> Can we go buy you something? Can we put a helmet on you? He's starting to argue with him, to say, you know, why don't you wear something that's more befitting of Amir al-Mu'mineen, right? The Khalifa of the Muslims, that's gonna come and receive the keys of Jerusalem. Now, by the way, does he have a point? Yes, he has a point. There's a good intention and he has a good point. But Subhanallah, Allah has created different people for different times. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu responds with the most famous answer, that we have ever heard نحن قوم الله بالإسلام وإن ابتغينا العزة أذلنا الله We are a people who Allah has honored through Islam When we seek it through anything else Allah will humiliate us That statement, you wonder what Umar would say to us today if we presented our condition to him, if you would seek his advice the same man that told Sa'ad when he assumed the governorship of Iraq, ala the first order for you is maintain your prayers because if you lose that then you lose everything else, what does he tell the Muslims? He says, we're a people that Allah honored through Islam, you're worried about their perception, you're worried about the way they're going to see us? If we seek honor through them, Allah will humiliate us. Now by the way, Abu Ubaidah if you remember his seerah, was one of the poorest of the Sahaba, was the commander of the Muslims, the Ameen of this Ummah and had absolutely no personal desire himself. In fact, Umar used to kiss his hands and Umar told Abu Ubaidah, if you remember, he said, "Uh, let me visit your home, you know, you're in Asham, you're the Amir of Asham, this entire area, let me come visit your home. Abu Ubaidah laughed and he said, you want to come cry? (laughs) You want to come see my house and cry? He said, come on over. And what happened, Umar anhu walked into the house of Abu Ubaidah and he started to weep because he said, you know, where is your food, Where is your where are your pots, where are your pans, don't you have anything? Abu Ubaidah anhu lived in a little tent and he had nothing with him. And he said, I told you you were going to cry. And Umar anhu said, غيرتنا الدنيا كلنا غيرك يا أبا عبيدة Dunya changed all of us except for you, O oh Abu Ubaidah. So this is not personal. This is a methodology issue. Umar anhu is making a point here to the Sahaba that we're not going to give in to their pompous nature, we're going to be ourselves. And I'm coming into Jerusalem this way. So after they argued with Umar and there were other people by the way Yazid ibn Abi Sufyan, Amr ibn As, others that tried to get Umar to change his appearance and he said, nope, I'm going in like this. (laughs) Come with me or stay back. And there comes Umar anh, walking into Jerusalem, <laughs> still with the servant on his camel, with a white garment, with 17 patches, covered in mud. And the people are just looking and saying, what in the world is this? Who is this man? What is this religion? What are these ethics? And subhanallah, whoever humbles themselves for Allah, and alillah, Allah. Allah elevates them. Immediately, all of the people started to praise the humility of Umar. Like, this man is different. This is the most powerful man in the world, and this is the way that he carries himself. And Sophronius, the patriarch, he says, <laughs> To a man like this, Jerusalem is handed over. Like, he's happy. SubhanAllah, I mean, this is incredible. Look at this man. Look at his humility. Look at his justice. And Sophronius, the patriarch, he said to Umar anhu, and he wasn't just praising him. He said, with a leader like you, your people will never be defeated. Subhanallah, sadaq, <laughs> told the truth. He said, with a leader like you, your people will never be defeated in anything. And Umar enters in and that was a momentous day of the entrance of Umar ta'ala anhu. The people are watching now this entire ceremony that is to unfold. Now before anything is handed over, the first thing that is done is that Umar ta'ala anhu and Sophronius have to sign some paperwork. And that is the pact of Umar ta'ala anhu, what's known as al al-umariya. The pact of Umar anhu between the Muslims and the Christians. Now by the way, the way that it's introduced, SubhanAllah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Hadha alayhi Abdullah, in the name of Allah, the most compassionate, the most merciful. This is a promise, a covenant that is given from the slave of Allah, Umar ibn khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the commander of the Muslims, Amir al-Mu'mineen. Even SubhanAllah, the way he's writing the pact is not one of, the, of, of, of any type of pompous nature. And the pact has been brought together by numerous historical sources, but the gist of that pact is obviously one where there are concessions that are going to be made by the Christians in Jerusalem in exchange for the protection of their lives and the protection of their churches and the protection of their crosses and their security, right? So you can have bits and pieces of this document that are construed, there is a wonderful uh, paper on it that we have at Yaqeen Alhamdulillah that was written by Dr. Tasnim al which is religious minorities under Muslim rule, where she dissects this, this uh, document a bit. But at the end of the day, it's a pact between Umar ta'ala anhu and the patriarch uh, of Jerusalem at the time. And subhanAllah, this should be mentioned, one of the conditions that the Christians put on the Muslims was that Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu would not allow the Jews that they expelled to come back. Why? Because they, pers- they, again, they were at war, the Christians and the Jews were at war with one another. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu allowed them to have free access to visit their place of worship and he returned, according to most of the sources, about 70 Jewish families to Jerusalem at the time. The justice of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu doesn't disappoint. The appearance of Umar radiallahu anhu doesn't disappoint. The relationship between him and Sophronius is on display for everyone. So if you're in Jerusalem at the time, you're watching the leader of the Muslims walk now with the patriarch of Jerusalem, and he's literally giving him a tour of Al-Quds. He's showing him around Jerusalem. He takes him to where? The Holy Sepulcher, the holiest site in Christianity. Now at ease of who this man radiallahu ta'ala anhu, is. Sophronius gives Umar ibn al-Khattab remember this was the man that tried to get the cross out of Jerusalem because he just wondered maybe just maybe they'll treat us the way the Persians treated us. Sophronius actually gives him the keys to the church. Umar gives it to the Muslims and Umar gives him a promise of its amana. This is one of the most beautiful things subhanAllah that till today one singular family, a Muslim family, has held the keys to the holiest site in Christianity. They're actually known as Al nusayba Who's Nusayba? Nusayba bint Ka'b Um Ammara radiyallahu anha. Her son Abdullah was one of those that entered into Jerusalem with the Muslims, and his family assumed the keys of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Until today, every morning, a man from that family goes and opens that church for the Christians. You can actually, it's, it's, there, there have been documentaries about this. The man today, his name is Adib Judah, who literally a Muslim man goes every day and opens the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for the Palestinian Christians to go and to access that church. And by the way, one of the things that historians mention is that this solved a lot of intra-Christian dispute. <laughs> Why? Because the denominations would fight over who gets to hold the keys to the church. Subhanallah. The Prophet ﷺ in Fatih Makkah, one of the first things the Prophet ﷺ solved was that only one family is in charge of the keys of the Kaaba, no one else gets to take it. There's something symbolic about who holds the keys, right? That was the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ. here. The wisdom and the amana of the Muslim shines that the Muslims would never betray that amana of the keys of the church, of the Holy Sepulchre, the holiest site in Christianity. Till now, as we said, Adib, Judah, and that family, Al nusayba holds that key. Then, of course, the famous incident takes place, where the Adhan of Dhuhr comes in, the time of Dhuhr comes in, the patriarch, in an act of friendship, right? They are now bonding. <laughs> this is, subhanAllah, a momentous occasion. And, 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 you know, if you think about it, even from a political perspective, the more that Umar anhu likes him, the easier life is going to be for his community which is now assuming a secondary status they're no longer going to be in charge here so when the time of salah comes what does he say he says why don't you pray in our church great symbol right go ahead and pray in our church Amir al-mu'mineen the leader of the Muslims praying in the holiest site of Christianity did Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu respond and say no because this is a place of kufr and you know absolutely not and forget you and no. Umar anhu said, listen, hear me out. There are people in, in the Ummah of the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi that were what? Muhaddathun, Spoken to people. Divinely inspired. SubhanAllah. Their vision is incredible. Umar anhu said, if I pray here, the Muslims are going to turn this place into a masjid one day. Years later, Muslims are going to come and they're going to say, Amir al-Mu'mineen prayed here. Therefore this is our place. This is a masjid. This is not a church anymore. So Umar anhu said, let me step out and pray outside so that people can't claim your religious place later on. So my community doesn't steal your church later on. And Umar radiAllahu anhu knows how much we love him. (laughs) Because what happened, he goes outside and literally the place that he prayed is now Masjid Umar. A Masjid was built 100 feet away from the Holy Sepulchre (laughs) called Masjid Umar. And every day, SubhanAllah, you know, may Allah, I know some of you have been able to see it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all of us to be able to experience it but it's, it's, it's a fascinating sight I mean even the images right you know you got the masjid making adhan there facing the holiest site in Christianity and guess what they're all Palestinians that's probably something that you're not told much uh, in the media to date, right subhanallah the wisdom of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu but then comes the adhan this is something subhanallah that uh I want us to actually think about for a moment. This meeting in Jerusalem was a reunion of Sahaba. A lot of these companions hadn't seen each other for a very long time. Think about who is there. Mu'adh bin Jabal, Abu Ubaidah, Amr ibn As, Khalid ibn al Abd ibn Awf, Sharhabir, Bilal ibn Rabah, Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiallahu anhum ajma'een, are gathered in this place that they used to hear about in Mecca and Medina, and they used to pray towards, because all of them were from they were all from the first, they all prayed towards Jerusalem as early Muslims and now they're gathered in Jerusalem. Talk about a surreal moment and SubhanAllah, this was a reunion of sorts for them. They had not been together like this since Medina and now they're all together in Jerusalem. And Umar ta'ala anhu, when he saw Bilal before we even talk about the Adhan story, Umar anhu embraced him for a long time and they both cried okay so what's narrated is that they hugged think about the meeting of Omar and Bilal who Bilal disappeared after the death of the Prophet Sallallahu he went out in jihad but he didn't want to be anywhere near Medina Omar doesn't leave Medina he hasn't seen Bilal for all of these years so he hugs Bilal anhu and they both cry and Umar says to Bilal, and I actually want to quote the words because the words are significant now. SubhanAllah, even to me, every time you read these incidents, something else pops out to you. He said, Ya Bilal, هذا yawmun min أيام الله. This is one of the days of the days of Allah. When Allah says, zhakirhum bi like there are days in history that don't come back. <laughs> When you look throughout history, there are a few days that stand out. Ya Bilal, we are in one of the most momentous days in the history of the world. Hada min ayyamillah, ya Bilal. Can you make adhan for us, O Bilal? That's his introduction. Bilal radiallahu anhu says, Laqad ala nafsi ahd." I took a, a promise on myself that I will never do adhan for anyone after the Prophet sallallahu I can't do it anymore. It was a promise that I made that if if it's not Rasulullah saying to me I can't do it anymore, I will never do it again until I meet the Prophet I took a promise. Umar pushes him and you know what he says to Bilal amongst the things? He says This would make the Prophet happy. So he, he, he talks to him with the love that he has of the Messenger. ﷺ. You're holding back out of your love of the Messenger. ﷺ. This would make the Prophet ﷺ happy. And if he were here, he would have ordered you to do the same. He would have asked you, Addin, Ya Bilal. You think of the Prophet ﷺ who ordered you to make the Adhan in Mecca and then in Medina, and none of the other Sahaba had the honor of being ordered to do so first. You think that the Prophet ﷺ would have passed you up if he were here? Addin Ya Bilal. Bilal, please make Adhan for us. And so Bilal goes to make the Adhan. Fatih Makkah, the first person to make Adhan in Medina. And by the way, who had the dream of Bilal making Adhan? Umar in Medina. He was one of the two that had the dream of the Adhan being made. So this is a connection between Umar and Bilal as well. And now Jerusalem. The first Muslim that's going to go up there and say Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar in Al-Quds, in Jerusalem. And when Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu got up to make the adhan, all of the sahaba cried, including Bilal hearing his voice in this place where these sahaba are together. And they said, subhanAllah, that Umar radiallahu anhu on that day wept so much that he fell to his knees while Bilal was giving the adhan. And the Sahaba were consoling him. Why? Because suddenly, this wasn't Jerusalem anymore, this was Medina. It took them back. They were remembering their time with the Prophet. They had not had this moment for decades now where Bilal is giving adhan and SubhanAllah took Umar radiallahu anhu back, Umar radiallahu anhu fell to his knees when he realized the Prophet Sallallahu died, fell to his knees, literally fell to his knees after all of this walking with the patriarch and going through this when Bilal radiallahu anhu made the adhan Umar radiallahu anhu could not hold himself anymore and SubhanAllah this marks the two most momentous Salahs in this place. The gathering of the Prophets, imagine a jama'ah a gathering where Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi is the Imam, and praying behind the Prophet sallallahu alaihi is Ibrahim alaihi salam, Isa alaihi salam, Musa alaihi salam, Yusuf alaihi salam, Nooh alaihi salam, ayyub alaihi salam, Dawud alaihi salam. Imagine that jama'ah. Imagine walking into a musalla and all of those people are praying behind one Imam, and the Imam is Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi That's the salah that took place in that place, that happened there. And now you have the second most noble salah. The gathering of the Sahaba of the Prophet. ﷺ. Umar anhu is the Imam, and all of these people are praying behind Umar ibn Khattab. Ta'ala anhu. This was the place also that when the Prophet ﷺ, on the night of Al-Asra'u al-Miraj, Jibreel gave him to drink what? Milk. And the dream of the Prophet, ﷺ, when the milk was coming through his fingers, was who was catching that milk? It was Umar and here is Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhu now leading salah in the same place the sahaba where the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam led all of the prophets now Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhu he wanted to know where exactly the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam led this salah. so he asked daluni 'ala al-makan alladhi salla fihi rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he's asking Ka'b ibn al-Ahbar who knows the area A Jewish rabbi that became a Muslim scholar, he's asking him, he's saying, I want to know where the Prophet led his salah. I want to pray in that exact place that Rasulullah prayed. Now at that time, that area was what? A dumpster, SubhanAllah, it's a dumpster. And when Umar sees it that way, Umar and the Muslims begin to clean up the dump themselves. So Umar gets down with the Muslims, with the Sahaba, and they are cleaning up that area. And ta'ala anhu, being first Jewish and then Muslim, he points to the area of the rock, right? And Umar ta'ala anhu says, no, that's not it. And in one narration he said, it's, your, it's, "It's it's your ignorance or the days of ignorance that are taking a hold of you, or it is your Jewish heritage maybe that's pointing you to that direction but I'm looking for the place that the Prophet prayed. Take me to the place that the Prophet prayed and then SubhanAllah in that place discovered that exact place where he would pray and this is now a first. The first time the Muslims can pray in Mecca publicly was because Umar was walking in front of the Muslims in one line in Hamza in the other. The first time Muslims could pray in Mecca publicly. The first Muslim after the Prophet ﷺ to pray in Al Aqsa is Umar ibn Khattab. Ta'ala anhu. So think about that first. And this is the area of Masjid al Qibali. All of it is considered Al Aqsa, including the area of the Dome of the Rock. All of that is considered Al Aqsa. Umar ta'ala anhu would pray in that place. Remember the moment where the Prophet ﷺ was praying in front of the Kaaba towards uh, Al Quds, towards Jerusalem, and Umar anhu was trying to figure out who he was? Now he's standing in Jerusalem praying towards Mecca. First one to do this. Because when the Prophet ﷺ did the night of al isra Al-Mi'raj, Jerusalem was still the Qibla. Umar stands in Al-Quds facing towards Mecca, praying in that direction. What do you think he's going to read in that Salah? It's pretty consequential, right? What does he read? I mean, one of them should be a, a give me. What is it? Surah Al Isra'. Obviously. <laughs> the first, or one of the surahs, the first surah that should come to mind the Surah Al Isra'. But that's the surah he would read in the second rak'ah. The surah where Allah talks about bringing his Prophet وسلم, here to this very place that Umar was praying right now. In the first rak'ah, he read Surah sa Surah sa has the mentions of Dawood السلام, and many of the happenings that took place in that area but particularly there was one ayah that Umar ta'ala, عنhu, read that shook him. Ya Dawood, inna khalifatan fil ard fahkum bayna al nas bil haqq wa la al oh Dawood, we have made you a khalifa in this earth. So rule between the people in justice and do not follow your desires. Umar ta'ala, عنhu, shook when he read that verse. SubhanAllah, he's reading that in Al-Aqsa. There's no structure yet, by the way. And he reads Surah al-Isra in the second one. I want to pause for a moment, SubhanAllah, and as we wrap up, uh, you know, there's the book 100 Most Influential People in History, written by Michael Hart. And the first person, of course, is Muhammad Sallallahu and that's something that was spoken about quite a bit. The only other Muslim that was mentioned there is Umar al-Khattab, or I'm sorry, the only of the Sahaba that's mentioned there is Umar ta'ala anhu. Uh, uh, He's number 52 on that list and of course our lists are with Allah. He's number two in our list after the Prophet and Abu Bakr ta'ala anhu. But he writes about Umar and he says Umar's achievements are impressive indeed because after Muhammad himself he was the principal figure in the spread of Islam. Without his rapid conquest it is doubtful that Islam would be nearly as widespread today as it actually is. Furthermore, most of the territory conquered, his reign has remained as such ever since. And he says, obviously, Muhammad should receive the bulk of the credits for those developments, but it would be a grave mistake to ignore Omar's contributions. The conquests he made were not an automatic sequence of the inspiration provided by Muhammad but also under his brilliant leadership himself It may surprise some that Umar, a virtual unknown figure in the West, has ranked higher on this list than people like Charlemagne and Julius Caesar. However the conquests made under Umar, taking into account both their size and their duration are substantially more important than either of those two. We owe so much to Umar ta'ala anhu, subhanAllah that particular moment as well. Now what does this mean for us? Uh, I don't know whether to read these uh, verses with a sense of pride or with a sense of shame. I honestly mean that. SubhanAllah, when you read the verses and the stories and then you go back to what's happening right now in Al-Aqsa, is it pride or is it shame? Is it pride in the moral system, in the fact that when Umar radiallahu anhu enters and when Salahuddin al-Ayubi radiallahu ta'ala anhu enters, we don't spill blood and do to others what has been done to us. We're not a people that defiled a sacred city. That's not who we are. The justice, the ethics, the contracts, the oaths, the way that people spoke about how they flourished and their civilizations under Muslim rule. Obviously, the next time that it would transfer out of the Muslim hands would be the Crusades, by the way. And we know what the Crusaders did, not just to Muslims, but to Jews and to other Christians as well. So there's the pride of it, but there is the absolute shame of it as well. And I want to mention subhanAllah in conclusion, you know, Ibn Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhumah, it's said about him that he used to travel from Al-Madinah to Al-Quds just to pray to rak'ahs and he was afraid of missing out on the reward to the extent that he would not even drink water when he was there because of the reward of that place. The narration of the dua. Sulaiman alayhi that our Prophet says, that no one comes to this masjid seeking the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except that they leave this place as pure as the day that their mother gave birth to them. The narration that I already mentioned about the oil in the lamps. There is another weak narration, Subhanallah, that whoever puts on the ihram from Jerusalem and makes his way to Hajj or Umrah will be forgiven uh, for all of their sins. And as I said, that's a weak narration. But Subhanallah, we actually find people like Waqi' ibn Jarrah, uh, the teacher of the Imam al-Shafi'i, Rahimahullah Taala, who is authentically narrated to have made multiple Umras from that place, wearing his ihram from Al-Aqsa seeking that reward of being in Jerusalem, and then Mecca, and then in Medina, all at the same time. The Prophet ﷺ saying that the Salah in Al-Aqsa is akin to 500 prayers elsewhere. And the Sahaba, an authentic narration from Abu Dhar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, tadhakarna wa nahnu Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ayyuhuma afdal masjidu Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aw bayt al-maqdis. We were mentioning in the presence of the Prophet ﷺ, which of the two masjids is better? The masjid of the Prophet ﷺ or Masjid Al-Aqsa And Rasulullah ﷺ said Salatun fi masjidi hadha afdalu min arba' salawatin feehi That a salah in this masjid of mine afdalu min salawat It's better than four prayers in Masjid Al-Aqsa Wala ni'man musalla But what a beautiful and blessed place that it is to pray Wala yushikanna an la yakuna lil rajuli there will come a day, SubhanAllah, there will come a day, the Prophet said, there will come a day that the most beloved thing in the world to a believer would be to have a piece of land where they could look out to Al Aqsa. And they would give up everything in the world for that opportunity the whole dunya would be meaningless to them for the opportunity to have a piece of land where they could look out and they could see al Masjid Al-Aqsa and they could go out and they could pray in Masjid Al-Aqsa SubhanAllah, what's at stake in Shaykh Jarrah? What's at stake in Silwan? What's at stake in these places that are being decimated every single day? And you think this isn't an issue of aqeedah? You think this isn't an issue of deen? You think this is just another political issue? This is an issue of creed for us. This is an issue of creed for us. This is an issue of iman for us. This is an issue of faith for us. Where the Prophet is saying that day will come, subhanAllah, it's as if these ahadith speak to exactly what we witness, that the most beloved thing in the world to a person would be to have that opportunity. And so dear brothers and sisters, we read about this and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us for our inability and to, to make us amongst those that find izzah in al-Islam, the way that Umar ta'ala anhu implemented, manifested, found and taught izzah in al-Islam. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us the piety of those people as they prayed in that blessed gathering. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to liberate al-Masjid al-Aqsa. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to liberate al-Masjid al-Aqsa and what is around it. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to liberate it once again and to allow for the Muslims to pray there in peace once again. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to restore the izzah of the Muslims through the izzah of Islam, to honor us through Islam. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that what we have lost of territory, what we have lost of connection, what we have lost of deen, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it for us. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to fill our hearts with faith, to fill our hearts with certainty, to fill our hearts with that which is beloved to him, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to pray in our lifetimes in a liberated Masjid al-Aqsa. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that just as he gathered Umar and Bilal and Abdurrahman ibn Awf and Khalid and Amr, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to gather us in that place. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that just as he gathered Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Isa alayhi salam Musa alayhi salam and the prophets, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to gather us in that place. And to allow us to pray in that place liberated, we ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to protect our brothers and sisters who are losing their homes around Al-Aqsa. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala that through our duas, through their duas, through the calls upon Him, we ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to protect those homes, to protect those families who are clinging to the most beloved places on earth in this moment. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to foil the plans of their oppressors we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to foil the plans of their occupiers we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect them we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant them the ability to persevere and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to make us amongst those the sinful and the passive but instead to make us amongst those that are active in that work in the best of our ability and we ask Allah to forgive us for that which is out of our ability and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to gather us not just in al aqsa the way that he gathered the Prophets, but to gather us with the Prophets. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not just to gather us in the place where these Sahaba gathered us, gathered, but to gather us with the Sahaba in the highest level of Jannat al-Firdaus with the Anbiya, with the Salihin, with the Shuhada, with the Sadiqin. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us that place, al-Firdaus al-A'la. Allahumma ameen. wa sallallahu wa sallam anabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah ta'ala.